0: The old cliche is that patience is a virtue. And and while it's true, patience is a virtue, my family can testify that it's not one I have in large measure. This is, as a kid, this was especially true at at Christmas time. Um, Probably many people can relate either with their kids or with themselves. But as a kid having to wait to Christmas to open a passage, my parents, they didn't wait until Christmas Eve to put them out. They started putting them out. As soon as we put the tree up, we put the tree up like the day after Thanksgiving. They immediately put something under the tree uh, to make us wonder what it was. And as the closer we got, they began to put more and more under there, and so they would begin to pile up. And we always wondered what was there. And the, the closer it got, the greater my anxiety was to know what it was they had gotten me. I knew what I had asked for. Uh, was that what was there? What was in that great big box? Why was that one box so heavy? Uh, questions along. Those lines. Now, I will say in full disclosure, but by the time I was 18, I was a master of steaming the tape and making it to come loose and pulling the tape back very carefully so that it didn't look like it had been unwrapped, seeing what was in the present and then wrapping it back to the point no one ever noticed. Very few surprises awaited me on Christmas Day the older I got. Like I said, patience isn't a virtue I possess in large quantities. Now, we all know waiting is hard. We also know that some things are worth waiting for. Some things are so wonderful that the worth, that the wait we have to go through is, is worth it once we receive what we've been waiting for. Today we're going to look at a passage that is going to show us something the entire world had waited for. Why this, this wait was worth it. Open your Bibles to Matthew 1, 18 through 25, where we're going to read, page 733 in your Pew Bible, and you find out I want you to get a stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew 1 and 18. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man, did not want to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her as of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and named him Jesus. title of the message this morning is, The Wait is Over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We love you. We worship you, Father. We bow and we surrender our lives to you. We want all we say and all we do to testify of your greatness and your goodness. Father, we rejoice in this Advent season to know that, Lord, our Savior has come once. And he is coming again. What a, what a beautiful promise we have. And we rejoice to know why he came the first time to save us from our sins. Father, help us to be sure we have one taken advantage of that for ourselves. Lord, we have come to Christ in repentance and faith. Our sins have been forgiven and we have been filled with your Holy Spirit. But then, Lord, let us, let us be a people that tell others about the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. God, in the service today, let our hearts and minds be open to You and what You want said and what You want done, what You want changed in our lives. Let Your Spirit speak through me and empower me and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I speak Your Word and Your ways for Your glory. Help me not to get in the way, be a hindrance in any way. Challenge us and change us, strengthen us and encourage us, renew our strength renew our hope, send us out into a dark and a dying community filled with the light of Christ so that the world would see Jesus in us. We ask this in His name, for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. The Gospel of Matthew is written by a Jewish former tax collector, primarily written to other Jews. Matthew's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus has a specific purpose of showing Jesus as the promised Messiah. One of the most common sayings in the book of Matthew is... Uh, this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. In doing this, Matthew was explicitly stating Jesus was the promised Messiah by showing the many, many ways He fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Now, the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, they begin at the very beginning. Remember, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He placed a man named Adam and a woman named Eve In the Garden of Eden, He gave them a purpose for their lives. They had near perfect communion with Him and a perfect relationship with one another. Things went along well until the devil came along and he tempted Eve to eat from the tree which God said you shall not eat from. She ate. She gave to her husband. He also ate. And at that moment, humans descended into spiritual death and sin and death, depravity and bad all flew into the world at this time. Now as God began to to come and visit with them and call them to repentance and and deal with them about what they had done, He dealt with the serpent. He dealt with the one who had tempted Eve to sin. And He told him. He said that, that you're going to be a constant enemy. Your descendants will be a constant enemy to the descendant, singular, of the woman. And the day will come when her descendant will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That was the first promise of a Messiah who would come and set right all the things that went wrong. as you can imagine, that was, I mean, that's kind of nebulous. If you weren't looking back now and, and knew that as the promise, you, you might not catch it, that that was a promise of a Messiah that would come. But the Jewish people, they understood it. And so they, they longed for it. And, and as the Old Testament goes on, God begins to, to give them clear pictures of what the Messiah would be like, what he would do. He would come. From the, the tribe of Judah. He would be a descendant of King David. He would be a suffering servant. He would have a ministry of miracles. He would cause the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, the dead to be raised. He would teach in parables. He would do all of these wonderful things. And things go on for like a, for thousands of years. All of these promises, all of these hints, all of these pictures. throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish people, they're longing for the day their Messiah is coming. They're longing for the day He will finally come upon the earth and the descendant of the woman will, will crush the serpent's head and set right all that went wrong that terrible day in the garden. When we get to the books of the New Testament, we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They declare to us the time of waiting. Is over. The one the world has longed for and looked for and waited for is here. He's come. And we're told specifically in this account why he came, what it meant for him to crush the head of the serpent. She should call him Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And what we learn in this, well, we learn that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And Jesus was worth the wait. All of those years of waiting were worth it because of what came. This passage shows us three reasons Jesus is worth the wait. And in those three reasons, we learn three, also three reasons Three, three reasons Jesus is the promised Messiah and three reasons he was worth the wait. The first is Jesus is God. When we look at Matthew and Luke's account together. We see that before what we see in Matthew, the angel Gabriel came to Mary. And he came to her to say, you're going to have a child. Now, that was interesting and problematic. It was problematic because she was a virgin. A virgin and Gabriel tells her this is what's going to happen. She asked the the question that you might ask. Well, how is that going to happen? I've never known a man. Gabriel says the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the the child born in you will be the Son of God. And she says, okay, I'm the Lord's servant. Whatever He wills, that I'll do. Now this brought a problem. Because Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph. Now engagements in this day were somewhat significant. they were often arranged marriages they often the engagement lasted for several years, um, and it was treated as though they were married, right but except for the fact they never came together as husband and wife. but all of the the binding vows of Keep yourself only unto them. Were, we're binding upon them up until then. But now she's pregnant, and eventually, it's going to show. And eventually, she's going to have to tell Joseph. And so she does. In our passage, we see she has told Joseph about this. Now Joseph has a dilemma. His fiance is pregnant. I think we could safely assume. She told him about the angel Gabriel coming and telling her about this. And I think the question in his mind is, can he believe that? Now, we may think, well, Joseph has a lack of faith, but could we believe that? Would we believe something as incredible as that? This simple girl from this simple town, she's the chosen one. And an angel came to her and this miraculous event was going to happen. Joseph has a dilemma. Can he believe her? Or can he not? And his dilemma is also in, in what to do in response if he doesn't believe her. Right? Because let's say he believes her. And so he stays with her. She's going to show eventually. The community, they're going to see she's pregnant. And it's going to look like her and Joseph have violated the vows of. As they were. They couldn't wait. They had lack of self-control. They were fornicators. Shame on both of them. If he believes her and stays with her. If he doesn't believe her. And he breaks off the wedding. He has to give a reason. And if the reason he gives is she's pregnant. Then the law about adultery. Immediately comes into being. And what happens in the law of adultery. Is she's taken to the city gates. She's kind of cast out on the ground. And Joseph and her parents have to first throw rocks to kill her. And then the whole community joins in and they stone her to death at the city gates. As a way to say this is what happens to adulterers and adulteresses. Well, verse 19 says Joseph apparently could not believe her. Could not embrace the story as true. And so he was going to break it off, but he was going to do it secretly, send her away secretly. Don't know exactly what that meant, but he was going to send her away secretly so that that disgrace and that punishment didn't come upon her. He was trying to save her from that death. As he's pondering this, as he's thinking on this, apparently he falls asleep because he has a dream in which an angel of the Lord comes to him, tells him, do not be afraid. I, I don't have time for this because it's not part of the lesson, the message. But in, in the in the Christmas story, in the various passages, there's an element of do not be afraid. Joseph is told do not be afraid. Mary is told do not be afraid. John the Baptist's parents are told do not be afraid. The shepherd is told do not be afraid. Good stuff. I don't have time for that, but it's really good. You should study that out. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her Is of the Holy Spirit. Then, verse 22, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy which Joseph would have known well. The prophecy is that a virgin would conceive, give birth to a son, and his name would mean, which we'll talk about this in a second more, would mean God with us. The fact his name meant God with us in part means he was God. So, this is the message Joseph receives Mary had not lied. The Holy Spirit had overshadowed her. The child in her was supernatural. The child in her was going to be the son of God. In fact, would be God with us. The idea of Jesus being God is one of the chief claims of Christianity. This is one of the reasons he had to be born of a virgin. The deity of Jesus and his virgin birth are so intertwined. One could not exist without the other being true. Jesus would not have been born of a virgin if He was not God in the flesh. And Jesus could not have been God in the flesh if He was not born of a virgin. Now, one of the issues with this, we're we're probably familiar with the idea of Jesus as God. But it might surprise you to know that in some circles, even in Christianity, the more liberal-leaning Christianity, the idea of Jesus being God is contentious. It's questioned. It's doubted, even. Among those who would profess to be disciples of Jesus. Their reasoning is Jesus never claimed to be God. Did He though? Did Jesus ever say anything that that not through some sort of modern American hermeneutic would produce a statement that's saying He was God, but that people at the time would have understood He was claiming to be God? Well, there are actually many. We only have time today for one. I and the Father... Are one. Now, that's a big statement. When he was saying the Father, they knew he was referring to God. I'm one with God, is what he says. I'm one with Yahweh. I and Yahweh, same guy. That's what he's saying. Now, that's the statement he made. The question we want to have is, did those who heard it understand him? Or are we reading into this and through a modern lens, modern Christocentric or modern lens, That he was claiming to be God. Or did the people who heard him understand that? Well, here's what they did. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Jesus replied. I showed you many good works from my father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him. We're not stoning you for good works. Blasphemy. Because you, being a man. Make yourself out to be God. When Jesus said, I and the father are one. He was claiming to be God. Those who heard Him understood Him. And so they wanted to execute Him, which was the, the, the punishment for blasphemy. They understood. They were even offended by it. That's just one of many of the claims Jesus made. And we could see the people understood it. And if you read any of the, the writings of the apostles, at some point they all make claims that Jesus is God. That they, they express that He is the Creator. That He is the light of the world. That He is the one that, that holds up all things. And over and over and over again, the apostles who walked with Jesus for three and a half years state repeatedly, Jesus is God. That is a fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus is not a man. Jesus was not a prophet. Jesus was not a good teacher. Jesus was and is God in the flesh. Now the reason this doctrine is so important, the reason we have to to hear it and to understand it, is because this claim, above all others, this claim about Jesus, forces us to make a choice about who Jesus is. Is he God, as he claims? And if he's not, what is he? Well, what would you call a man who claimed to be God in the flesh? What if tomorrow you're going about your business and you're doing whatever you do during the week and a man comes up to you and says, hey, do you have a minute for me to talk to you? Because you're a nice person, you say, sure, i got a minute, have a seat. So you sit down and and he begins to tell you, I'm one with Yahweh. I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. What are you going to think about such a person? You have to make an immediate choice, don't you? Is he God? And if he's not, what is he? Well, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he, he talks about this dilemma that we have. And he says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing people often say about Jesus. And here's the foolish thing. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic On the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman. Or else something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of the patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The statement Jesus is God immediately forces us to make a decision about it. And if he is God, there are claims he has on our lives, on our beings. And how we're to live and move and act in this world. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he was worth the wait because he is God. Jesus alone saves. One of the most disliked doctrines of Christianity is the uniqueness of Jesus in salvation. Most can accept Jesus as a way. Most can accept Jesus as maybe being a God. They are fine with saying Jesus is one way among many. But they are not okay with saying Jesus is the one and only true way to God and the one and only Savior of the world. And yet, as we come to God's Word, if we're to take it seriously, we have to recognize this is what God's Word teaches This is what Jesus himself said and what his apostles understood. Now, we don't have time for me to throw them up on the screen, but I'll give you some references to look at. John 14 and 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus' own words. He is the only way. Now, again, did those who heard him understand that? Well, in Acts chapter 4, Peter is speaking and he says in Acts 4, 10 through 12, he says there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Peter understood when Jesus claimed to be the only way he understood he was the only path of salvation. The Apostle Paul, who met Jesus a little later, he would write in 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5 that there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Paul understood there was only one path to God, and it was through Jesus. The Apostle John in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, he would later, toward the end of his life, he would write. Those, oh, I can't quote it, my goodness, my mind. I'm sure you all don't have these times where your mind just suddenly goes blank, but that's why I have the reference here. First John 5. This the, the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Life is found in Jesus, Jesus alone. So, Jesus claimed it, and His apostles understood it, And promoted it. So it's clear. God's word teaches this. But it could raise another question. Why is Jesus alone the Savior? Why is Jesus alone the the way to any legitimate salvation? Well the answer is given in this passage in verse 21. Name him Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to be our Savior. Jesus came to save us from sin. Jesus alone saves because Jesus alone solves the problem of sin. Now, one of the consequences of an Adam and Eve sin is that every person born after them was born with a rebellious nature, a sinful nature, where they rebelled against the the rule and the reign of God in their life. And that rebellion against God in their heart has led in all people a rebellion against God in their life. At some point, all of us have done something God has said not to do. God has said, thou shalt not. And we have said, I I actually shall. I'll do as I like. We have made the decision we would live for ourselves rather than live for God. We have all sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And that's what we've earned. That's. What we've received in our lives because of our rebellion in heart and our rebellion in action. But this could bring another question though, from some. What if I don't feel like a guilty sinner? What if I don't feel like someone who has sinned in such a way I deserve death? I mean, I'm basically a good person. I don't think I deserve the death of a sinner like you're saying. Now, that's a question. But it's a question that comes from someone who doesn't understand God's standard of righteousness and they don't understand the severity of sin. God's standard of righteousness and God's standard for sin is the law. Everyone who sin, who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The idea is sin is breaking God's law. That's what it means to, to be lawless. There is a law from God that says thou shalt and thou shalt not. But we have been lawless and we have said, I I shall do what you've said I shall not do. I shall not do what you've said I I shall do. Ain't nobody the boss of me. I'll do what I want to do in my life. And we've all done that. Now the, the law, as it's meant here, is basically the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, we don't have time to look at them. The Ten Commandments reveal the perfect standard of righteousness of God. First four deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with humanity. And they lay out God's perfect righteousness. In fact, if you were to do a study on every command given in Scripture, you could, in one way or another, tie them back to the Ten Commandments. Every other command in God's Word flows out of the Big Ten. And we've all broken the Ten Commandments at one point or another. Now, Romans three nineteen and 20 tells us that the better we know God's law, the more we see we have sinned and we have violated it right so an easy example to point home that the better we know it the better we understand we've sinned is the command not to murder exodus 20 and 13 you shall not murder i mean cursory examination seems clear enough i've never killed anyone therefore i've not broken that commandment then you get to jesus and jesus lays out not only the letter of the law but the spirit of the law and jesus says the spirit of the law is to, to be angry at someone without cause. To have condemned someone in our anger. Or to have treated someone with contempt. And Jesus says if we've been angry without cause, we've condemned someone in our anger. Or we have treated someone with contempt. We have broken that commandment. Now, I don't know about you. I've never killed anyone. That That's pretty hard. That, that's, a, that's a whole different issue when you get to it like that. The better you know it, the more clear it is that you've broken it. And we could do that with, with all of the commandments. Right? The, probably the greatest violation of the, the Ten Commandments come in the first four in our relation to God. Take the first commandment. Exodus 20 and 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Again, a cursory examination says, I got that one. I mean, I've never worshipped Baal, Allah, Buddha. I've never prayed to Thor or Odin or anything like that. I'm, I'm good. But, but are we? Because to have no other gods before God is, is more than a command not to have worshipped a pagan god. It is to make sure God is the supreme object of your love and devotion and service. And to have kept that commandment perfectly, God would have had to have been number one in my love, service, and devotion every moment of every day of my life. There could never have been a moment in my life where I knew God wanted me to do one thing, but I did something else. There could never be a moment in my life where I knew God didn't want me to do something, but but I did it anyway. Anyway. And it can't just be like I said it, yes, God is number one in my life. It's not that. It's our actions, our thoughts, our reactions, the stressors, the values we have, the priorities we have. Can any of us say God has been that place of priority and preeminence in our life every moment, every day of our lives? Of course, none of us can say that. We haven't kept that law, so we have sinned. And as since we have sinned, we have earned the wage of sin, which is death. If we went through all Ten Commandments, it would play out exactly the same way. The letter might seem easy enough, but the Spirit, whew, that would cut us to the quick, that would cut our hearts. So where does this leave us? It leaves us condemned. Because we've all sinned. We've all earned the wage of sin, which is death. And the eternal wrath of God will be poured out upon us throughout all of eternity as the just judgment for our sin. That's the wage of sin. But there's good news. Jesus came to save us from our sin. Jesus came to save us from the wrath of God we have earned our sin this is why Jesus died on the cross his horrific death on the cross wasn't the death of a martyr it wasn't poor pitiful Jesus that's one of my least favorite thoughts that I've heard people say Jesus was such a good guy he did these wonderful things he taught great things he loved people did miracles and then they turned against him and they killed him poor Jesus But it's not poor Jesus. He was born the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. All of the Old Testament sacrifices where they killed the animal. All of those things where they killed them and drained the blood and burned the offerings. Every single one of them pointed to the one perfect sacrifice that would come. Jesus came and the death on the cross wasn't an incidental. Thing. It wasn't an accidental thing. It was the point of his life. We celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, but he was born to die. Easter was the point to die, to rise again. And as he hung on the cross, he took the punishment for our sins. It is appropriate to say Jesus endured hell on the cross in our place. And he endured the wrath of God against our sin until he cried out, it is finished. He had paid the debt that we owed, And when he said it is finished, he was saying God's wrath has been satisfied. The penalty for sins has been paid. And he died, and three days later he rose again. And when we believe on Jesus, we call out to him. We are saved from our sins. His righteousness is taken and placed in our account. Our unrighteousness is taken and it is placed upon the cross. And as disciples of Jesus, as those who have been born again, we are in the presence of God, in the eyes of God, the perfect righteousness of God. Jesus became sin for us so that we could become righteous through him. This is why we don't suffer the punishment for sin. It's not because we believe on Jesus and we get squared, we square our lives away and be good from that point on. No, that's not why. We're spared from the judgment to come because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. That's the only reason we're spared. Our sin, my sin, has already been punished on the cross. Hell is not my home hell will not be where i end up in eternity because my sin has already been punished. Now, that's not saying i'm a wonderful human. i've been a perfect christian. i haven't. It's saying Jesus was perfect in my place. It's saying Jesus was righteous in my place, and his righteousness imputed to me saves me from the wrath to come. Jesus is the one and only savior. Because only Jesus deals with sin. Only Jesus takes away sin and gives righteousness. Other religions may seem to offer salvation and eternal life. But it's an illusion. It's a trick. It may look good now, but behind the curtain, it's just the same old enemy doing the same old things. And on the day of judgment... It will leave us damned. Only Jesus can save us from the justly deserved wrath of God. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And he was worth the wait because Jesus alone saves. And then finally, Jesus is always with us. As the angel continues to talk to Joseph about the son in Mary. This took place so that it was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God with us. This is who Jesus is. He is God with us. Advent and Christmas are not seasons set aside to think about the first or the second coming of a regular guy or a great religious teacher. They're not a season set aside to remember a miracle worker or a prophet. It's a season set aside to celebrate the fact God became a man. Advent is a celebration of an invasion. When God invaded the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, he became truly and completely human, yet without being God, without ceasing to be God. (laughs) That was heresy. Be careful about that without ceasing to be God. He was 100% God, 100% man. The question is, how is that possible? I don't know. That's the mystery of the incarnation. But Jesus is God with us. He's not God above us. He is God among us. He lives among us. For 33 years or so, He did it Physically. In a limited location, but now he does it through the indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit. This is one of the great teachings of God's Word. Jesus is always with us. If you remember from our study in Revelation, the seven he talks about the seven candlesticks, and they represented the seven church. And Jesus walked among the candlesticks. Jesus is here. He is walking among us today. But He's he's not bound by this physical location. When we depart from here today, He is going to go with us wherever we go. If we have repented of our sins and we have believed in Jesus, we've been born again, the Spirit of God lives within us. And that is the hope of glory, Christ within us. He is God with us all throughout our lives, everywhere we go and in all that we do. This is one of the great promises of God's Word. The idea of God being with us has always been hopeful for the people of God. King David wrote, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is one of my very favorite verses in all of the Bible. Because David is not afraid as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. He's not afraid as he walks through the hard times of life. It would be easy for us to say, well, David was a mighty warrior. David as a young man killed Goliath. That's why David wasn't afraid, but that's not what he says. David's confidence as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death is not in his strength, his skill, or his battle prowess. It is in the fact God is with him. Yahweh, his shepherd, is there to guide him, to lead him. And his rod and his staff, they comfort me. And it's sitting in my notes when we tell the story. There's a story. And it's a poem. It's like the the worst poem you could ever find about Jesus. And it's called, The Shepherd Breaks the Leg, or something like that. And it tells the story of a sheep straying. And the shepherd continually going to get it. And then, eventually, the sheep strays so much... That the shepherd brings it back and he takes his rod and he breaks it through his legs so that it can't run off anymore. But the story is, that's what Jesus will do to us because he loves us. I don't know about you, but the thought of Jesus having a great big stick and going to break me off the kneecaps because I'll stray away, that is not. That brings me zero comfort. That is the most terrifying thought I've ever had. But that really wasn't what the rod in the sack was for. The rod was to fight the enemy, the wolves, the thieves who came to steal, kill, and destroy. He, he fought on behalf of his sheep. And when his sheep began to stray, he used his staff, the crook, to reach out and grab it and, and pull it back. And even if it fell off in a hole, he would use the crook to lift it and to, to pull it up. The rod and the staff of Jesus being with us isn't, he's going to break our legs. It's, he's going to fight our battles. He's going to defend us against the enemy. He's going to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil on our behalf. And He goes with us. And He fights for us. And yes, when we stray, He reaches out and He grabs us and He pulls us back. How great is it to know He doesn't save us and then say, do good. Square yourself away. But He says, I've got you. Follow me. And He leads us. And He's with us. Through the fires, through the floods, through the valleys of the shadow of death, to the green pastures, to the still waters, in the paths of righteousness. He's always there and He's always with us. One of the last things Jesus said to His disciples was to go and make disciples of all nations, to baptize them, to teach them. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. This promise is for all who have repented of their sins and believed on Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. Jesus is the Savior, the promised Messiah, and He was worth the wait because Jesus is always with us. So the question before us is, have we embraced Jesus? Have we embraced Him as our God? Have we embraced Him as our Savior? Have we experienced Him as our Emmanuel? If we cannot honestly answer yes to these questions, then make today the day you do. Make today the day you experience the true purpose of, Christmas, a Savior who came to save us from our sins. Call on Jesus today and He will save you. And I want to, for those of us that have repented and have believed, I always want to call us to deeper and more. There is more. To Jesus than what we have. Now, I'm not saying any of us have a deficient relationship with Jesus. What I'm saying is, there's always more. There is always more. It's what I want to call us, those who have repented, those who have believed, those who are disciples of Jesus. I want to call us to hunger and thirst for the more. To cry out for the more. I mentioned this several times. But Ephesians, Paul talks about being filled with all the fullness of God. He talks about us knowing the, the height and the depth and the width and the length and the breadth of God's great love. Can you say you are filled with all the fullness of God all the time in your life? If you can't, there's more. Can you say you live with this constant awareness of the height, the depth, the length, the breadth, and the width of God's love for you? If not, there's more. Paul says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that is already at work in us. Do you experience an exceeding abundant power at work in you, through you, and for you on a regular basis? There's more. Jesus came to save us from our sins, but not leave us there. To draw us to the place where we are filled with all of the fullness of God. Where we understand all of the greatness of God's love. Where we experience all of the power of God at work in us and through us and for us. Do not be satisfied. Do not be content where you are. Do not stop. Do not let up. Pursue Jesus with all your might. Understand as David said in Psalm 63... That this is a dry and a thirsty land and there is no water here. But our souls long for Jesus. And if you don't long for Him, you cry out for that. And when that soul thirst stirs, you seek Him until you get the more. And never, never stop. Let's pray.